Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself. And thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and those who are othered and the victims because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. What? There are many well-documented crimes that rarely get any public attention. And that is because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman, and I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. It's not her fault. She is an ally, and we love her (laughs) so much for it. Fix Beth a plate! (laughs) We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we're talking about Randall Scott Deleuze, a Black man who along with a white man named Nicholas Sexton, was convicted in Bangor, Maine, of murdering three people and then burning their bodies in a car. Wild case. And when I thought of this all happening in New England, I thought I was wondering about your connection to it. So we'll get into that. But before we do, how you doing? I'm all right. Uh, Super duper 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 busy. (laughs) Yep. 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 Although I wanted to say we had a meeting the other day with a magazine and you were standing up in your big office. Right. You have a stand-up I, desk? I do, yeah. Oh, fancy. I've, I've had a stand-up desk for forever. Well, yes, but I assumed when they moved you into the office that you would have to acquiesce to, you know, peasantry nope. Nope. And, having, <laughs> and having a sit-down desk. I have a Vera desk. 
I'm so excited for you because they say, you know, health experts that sitting is the new smoking. Yeah. And so I'm happy for you that you get to stand up at Thank your you. desk. So when I started standing, it was weird. Um, yeah. It just, you know, it's it's kind of weird at first, but now sitting is weird. So yeah. I pretty much stand all day long. Personally, I hate sitting at my desk and I can't stay awake. And if these people want me to do my job, they need to give me a stand up desk. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> They need to give me a stand-up desk. And also, um, the office temperature is a problem. And if they want yeah. me to work, it needs to be at least 75 degrees. That's it. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. Okay, I quit. I quit this bitch. Uh, so now let's get into some listener letters. <laughs> oh, hello, angels. Ooh. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, Beth, what is in that bag? <laughs> well, I wanted to say thank you to Devlin, Drace, and Kirsten for your emails. Oh, and I'm sorry yes. if I pronounced any of those wrong. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Anyway, Kirsten said she recently went to a pre-Broadway show at the Paper Mill Playhouse in Melbourne, New Jersey. Mm, okay. And at the start of the show, they announced how the theater was built on land that belonged to the Lenny Lenape. And to honor the land and its inhabitants. So Fuck that's really yes, cool. Yes, that's yeah. fantastic. That's for Kirsten, Kirsten. and for yeah. the theater who did that. That's yes, fantastic. yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And also a friend of the pod, Abby E. Goldberg, PhD, professor of psychology and director of women's and gender studies at Clark University, has a book coming out in six months about the Ooh. misrepresentation of queer lives in true crime. So watch for that. Yes, we are so excited because we got yeah. to kind of be a part of the book and we just want it to do well. It is a fantastic like topic and Dr. Goldberg is the best. Yeah, she's really cool. Everything Dr. Goldberg has going on over there. She's doing amazing. Yeah, really exciting. And then uh, please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Oh, can I tell you something? I was looking for an anagram like website that would create like a 602 true crime, 602 Winnie oh, and Beth right, right. anagram for us. And I haven't found one yet. So if okay. listeners can come up with one, that would be awesome. All anyway, right. in the meantime, we have no new Patreons. But if you want to support the show and get personalized shout outs, merch, bonus episodes and content, check out our Patreon page and sign up yeah. there. Yeah, so absolutely. we're going to take a quick little break and get into the story when we come back. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. So we are back. Uh, remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Our subject today is Randall Scott Deleuze, a convicted multiple murderer. He killed three people and then tried to cover it up by burning their bodies in a car. Interesting, though, Mr. Deleuze says that he is innocent. That's true. He yeah. does say. He's yeah. got a whole website and everything. So let's get yep. into some stats. Uh, one second. Have I ever done a podcast before? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> rest in power to the victims. They're uh, Daniel Thomas Borders, who was 26 years old. Nicole Ashley Lugdon, who was 24, and Lucas Allen Toscano, who was 28. They were shot to death and their bodies were burned in a car in Bangor, Maine, in a parking lot. So now we're going to get into the setting and take us there, Beth. The setting is Bangor, Maine, and uh, I, I believe the locals call it Bangor. <laughs> Whoa, really? Okay. Yeah, something like that. They have Thank an you. accent. Oh, Bangor, like Avatar. Yeah, something like that. Bangor. Bangor, Maine, <laughs> Avatar. <laughs> so Bangor sits on the west bank of the Penobscot River, approximately 60 miles from the ocean. Bangor is the third largest city in Maine and has a population of approximately 32,000. Wow, that's more than I ever would have imagined because I forget that Maine <laughs> is even a place in the world. So forgive me. Prior to European invasions, the Panawapskui, now known as the Penobscot, God, Europeans really ruin everything because that's what white people misheard, yep. uh, lived along the Penobscot River in modern Maine. At this time, there were probably about 10,000 Penobscot living there. They were a hunter-gatherer society who practiced some agriculture. Today, they are a federally recognized tribe in Maine known as the Penobscot Nation and a First Nations band government in the Atlantic provinces and Quebec. Maine is part of New England. Ever heard of it? <laughs> Located in the northeast corner of the United States. New England is made up of six states, and I'm glad you put this in here because I had no idea. <laughs> Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Vermont. And the region is bounded to the north by Canada, to the east by the Atlantic Ocean, 
to the south by Long Island Sound. Um, <laughs> watching too many Real Housewives of New Jersey. Sorry. And to the west by the state of New York. In 1620, Puritan separatists fleeing religious persecution sailed to the quote unquote New World. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. It's brand new. Nobody lives uh-huh. there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. And established Plymouth Colony, the first permanent English colony in New England. It is located on Cape Cod Bay, south of what is now Boston. Ten years later, more Puritans established Massachusetts Bay Colony, located north of Plymouth Colony. It just made me want to recite the Malcolm X speech in the movie that Denzel Washington should have won an Academy Award for. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. You've been bamboozled. You've been took. Anyway, and I'm done now. (laughs) Europeans were attracted to the coast of Maine for fishing and fur trading. France colonized the area north and northeast of the Penobscot Valley, and the English colonized the area south. France's defeat at the hands of the English in the French and Indian War consolidated English domination in what was to become the northeastern United States. Bangor was incorporated as a town in 1791. The Penobscot had contact with Europeans through trade. The Penobscot traded fur pelts for European goods such as metal axes, guns, and copper or iron cookware. But hunting for fur pelts in the quantity that the Europeans wanted reduced the game. I mean, how much do y'all need for yeah, God's seriously, sakes? Seriously. Um, just money, 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 money. Yeah, just just use what you need. That's all. Yeah. And everything will be fine. Um, but European trade also brought with it infectious diseases, to which the Penobscot had no acquired immunity. Their fatality rates from the introduction of measles, smallpox, and other infectious diseases was high. The population also declined due to further encroachment and violence by settlers. When the settlers dammed the Penobscot River, they cut off access to the Penobscot's main food source of running fish. Clear-cutting forests for the logging industry affected the population of big game. And then there were straight-up massacres carried out by white settlers. By the early 19th century, the Penobscot population had fallen below 500. 500 humans. Oh, my God. You know, uh, I heard a really good comedy bit, a comedian, and I can't remember his name at this point, but he said what white people are really good at is inventing value. And so white settlers came to the shores of they call it Turtle Island or the Americas. And they were like, well, who owns this? And yeah. nobody, they were like, nobody. This is just, we just live here. We're in peace. You know, we fight amongst each other every now and then. But nobody owns this. This is the land. And the white right. people were like, oh, oh it's <laughs> nobody mine now. owns it? Yeah. Okay. And havoc ensued. So much of today's eastern Maine was a province of Massachusetts until 1820, when Maine became an independent state. Modern Bangor, Bangor, was established <laughs> in the mid-19th century with the lumber and shipbuilding industries. About 90% of Maine is forested, the highest percentage of any state. This includes some 12 million acres in the northern part of Maine where few people live. The abundance of lumber brought unprecedented wealth to the region. Ships were built in Bangor shipyards along the river, and they shipped Maine pine overseas. 
I'm surprised by that forestry stat. Yeah. Only because I live in Atlanta now and they call it the city in the forest. And there's so many trees. So it's hard to imagine there could be a place with even more. But that's more trees. Yeah. 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 But wait, by the 20th century, (laughs) Bangor's sawmills and shipyards gave way to today's dominant forest industry. Pulp and paper. And forest products are still a key part of the state's economy, and Maine is the second largest paper-producing state. Outdoor recreation attracts a lot of visitors to Maine, which is known for fishing, hunting, camping, hiking, canoeing, and kayaking, mm. whitewater rafting, mountain biking, and skiing. So lots of... Lots of outdoor activities. Yes. Which I think we normally associate with white people, doing, yes. but yes. BIPOC people do enjoy that stuff too. Yeah. And fall foliage touring draws tens of thousands of people to Maine's forest every year. And Maine is, it's beautiful. Yeah. I went there many times when I lived in Connecticut, mostly with a boyfriend's family because he had family oh, that lived there. Okay. But once <laughs> with my sister and my dad and uh-huh. we camped in Baxter State Park, which is in the northern part of Maine. Okay. And I saw a moose for the first time on that trip. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's what- absolutely gorgeous. Were you like, I'm thinking temperature wise, were you comfortable? It was cold. It was okay. cold. And then yeah. you can, you can count me out. Uh, <laughs> sounds great. So during the day, it was a, a nice, comfortable temperature, but at night uh-huh. it got cold. And we also went swimming and the, the, in water, the water and was the water freezing. was okay. It was and you freezing. went inside yeah. of it. We went Your whole body. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, that sounds great. I'm so glad you had a lovely time in Maine. But uh, you're not going to go there. (laughs) No, no, no. Unless unless the fruities want us to do a live show. Live show at the the Maine, whatever Maine's comedy comedy, uh, venue is, sign us up. We'll be there. But there better be a hot tub in the hotel. Otherwise, I'm out of (laughs) here. I just always remember you saying you'd never visit Stone Mountain and now you live there. And look at me. Look at how the times have changed oh my god never you're right never Never say say never never Never, ever say it so as of the 2020 census the racial makeup of the city of bangor is 88 percent white two percent black one percent native american two percent asian one percent from other races and six percent from two or more races latinx of any race make up two percent of the population And I think those numbers speak to how America has not done a very good job of dividing up races or ethnicities because none of that makes a lot of sense. But go ahead. (laughs) Well, what it says is that Bangor is very white. Mostly white. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And here's a fun fact. Bangor is the home of the author Stephen King. Yes, I just ascended (laughs) from my chair through the ceiling. (laughs) I love I love Stephen King. Never read an actual book, but I love all the movies that his books are based on. Yeah. Anyway, so a quick culture corner. You know, the economy of Maine, as Beth said, she went there. It was so beautiful. It's very touristy, right? There's a lot of touristy right. towns in New England. And tourism is really great for economies. But the service workers is, I think, one thing that we cannot forget. And yeah. those are the people who keep the entire thing running. The workers who run the boats, who serve the food, who clean the hotels that you stay in. And the campsites and the streets and the beaches, 
And they have been living off of really stagnant wages and have to contend with their rent being increased and and things like that. So just a culture corner, like from a humane standpoint, is we have to consider when we go to these places that are so beautiful and we love them, what are we doing to hurt or harm the economies and the peoples that live there? Yeah. So now it's time to get into Randall Scott Deleuze's early life. What do you got, Beth? Well, Randall Scott Deleuze was born on November 25th, 1977. Although media articles say he is from Brockton, Massachusetts, according to Deleuze, he grew up on Cape Cod in Hyannis and attended Barnstable High School. Yeah, he was kind of, I mean, if you go to his website, he's not happy that He was painted to have lived in an area that he did not actually live or grow up in. Right. Because it made it look like he was more hood or quote unquote ghetto than he actually was. From the streets. Yes, exactly. (laughs) There's a comedian who talks about some kid saying he's from the streets and Mm -hmm. I'm going to fuck this up. But (laughs) continue. I can't wait. (laughs) He's like, Dylan, you grew up in the suburbs. (laughs) Your street is a (laughs) cul-de-sac. The hard cul-de-sac streets. You never know what's going to come up behind you when you are in the cul-de-sac. I mean, come on. Come on. Yeah. Whoever that was, I see you. Yeah, I don't remember, Uh, but it was me. (laughs) But uh, it does, it does, I think... In in my takes, I'll get into it. But okay, my impression is they painted him out to be a thug, and he yes. would not describe himself as that. So right, known as Ricky or by the street's name Money Deleuze, was arrested seventeen times, beginning at the age of fourteen, mostly in the Cape. Those charges included larceny, possession to distribute marijuana as a teenager, which is a lot, operating a motor vehicle while under the influence of drugs. Again, as a teenager, when you just barely have your license, it's a lot. Lewd and lascivious behavior, indecent assault, carrying a dangerous weapon, trespassing, and disturbing the peace. In each of those cases, Deleuze either was given a suspended sentence or charges were dismissed. In 2001, Taunton, Massachusetts police arrested Deleuze for disturbing the peace. In 2003, Deleuze checked into a hotel and then destroyed the room the next day. Hotel management said he used a glass to smash the bathroom mirror and urinated on the carpet. That's not cool. Oh boy, no, that's not good. Well, okay, so uh, (laughs) Deleuze allegedly also pulled a lighting fixture from the wall, ripped apart a screen, and dripped blood on the floor. What? It it seems like a lot for one young person to do. I'm just saying. So Deleuze was charged with malicious destruction of property over $250, but the charge ultimately was dismissed. Do you think he had like a party there or something? I think he might have had a party and there was other people with him. There's Right. I mean... 14-year-olds are awful. Uh, But I I can't imagine that one did all of this on his own. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot. At the time, Deleuze was living in either Truro on Cape Cod or Fall River, and that's where Lizzie Borden was from. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. But he'd also lived in Brockton, a city in Plymouth County, Massachusetts. As of the 2020 census, the population in Brockton is approximately 106,000. Um, and again, this is small town stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, Beth and I, I've lived in small towns, but, you know, coming from Phoenix and then coming to Atlanta, 
I have a mostly large town experience. And so right. 100,000 is pretty small. Yeah. And you might know yeah. everybody, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. Brockton is the most populous and most densely populated community in Plymouth County and is approximately 51% black. And that is an impressive number. And also yeah. I think is uh, key to the story. So the median income in Brockton is significantly lower than in the rest of Plymouth County and Massachusetts as a whole. In April of 2004, Taunton police responded to a house on Weir Street after a caller said a crying woman who identified herself as Deleuze's wife ran to his apartment building because she was afraid Deleuze was about to assault her. Police warned, but did not arrest Deleuze. Interesting. So in 2008, Deleuze did a one-year stint in jail for stabbing a man in Orono. So after the domestic assault incident, he stabbed somebody. And this happened just north of Bangor, Maine. And in 2011, he was arrested for possession of cocaine. In February of 2012, he pleaded guilty to felony illegal importation of drugs and was sentenced to 90 days in jail. And by 2012, Deleuze had five children. I'm always trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, but this... Yeah, this is a lot. This is a lot of doubt. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Now we're going to get into the time line. So Deleuze had a friend and associate named John Sexton, a white man. And Sexton also had a history of violence and drug possession. He once stabbed a man in the neck for which he was given an eight-year prison sentence. And the man survived, so he did not kill him. On August 11th, 2012, in Rhode Island, about six weeks after Deleuze was released from jail on the drug charge, Sexton renewed a rental agreement on a Pontiac Grand Prix, then used the car to drive to Massachusetts to pick up Deleuze. Deleuze told his girlfriend he was, quote, going to work, unquote. Oh, okay. I'm just going to take this rental vehicle and go to my job that doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, so the pair drove to Bangor 
where they picked up Daniel Borders and his live-in girlfriend, Caitlin Lugden, who was 18 at the time. Dan had a daughter named Haley from another woman who lived in Connecticut. He worked in construction, but also sold drugs. Dan and Caitlin often purchased drugs from Sexton and Deleuze, which they used themselves and Dan sold to others. But the couple had been making fewer drug buys from Sexton and Deleuze because Caitlin's older sister, Nikki Lugden, was supplying them with a less expensive and better quality product. Well, if the product is better, I mean, hello. So Nikki had a rough life. According to her Facebook profile, she lived in Brockton as a child when she was just two years old. Her maternal grandmother and uncle were killed in a house fire. In 2002, when Nikki was 13, her mother died of a heroin overdose. Just five months later, Nikki's father killed his mother, her paternal grandmother. Holy crap. So that's that's yeah. a lot of trauma lot. for one yeah. individual. So both Nikki's father and Nikki's grandmother were heroin addicts, and the killing resulted from an argument over drugs. Nikki was in the house and hiding in a second floor room with her two-year-old brother, while her father stabbed her grandmother 36 times. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. I'm just, I'm in my, my heart is breaking for yeah. that little girl, Nikki. Lisa Melendez, her paternal aunt, said, quote, She was doomed to fail with all she had happened to her in her family life. She was raised in a family atmosphere where things like theft and drug use were commonplace and even encouraged, unquote. Nikki lived with her Aunt Lisa from late 2002 through 2004 before moving to Aroostook County and staying with a foster family. She then lived for three years with Barbara Pinot and Dan Robinson near Madawaska, a little town in northern Maine at the Canadian border. At Madawaska High School, Nikki was an honor roll student, so she's doing well. Yeah, I think under this the uh, little, little tiny town on the Canadian border was good for her. Yeah. Um, And she earned varsity letters playing softball and basketball. And she also became involved as a volunteer with the Can-Am Sled Dog Race, youth sports and helping disabled adults. She attended the University of Maine at Fort Kent before moving to Boston. But when Nikki returned to the Bangor area, she started partying. She had a relationship with a man and the couple had a daughter that they named Mia. But eventually they broke up because of Nikki's partying. Recreational use of weed and prescription drugs had turned into regular use of harder drugs like cocaine and heroin. Barbara Pernod said that she considered Nikki her daughter ever since she came to live with her. And quote, this is where she would come back for holidays, unquote. She described Nikki as a wonderful girl who was full of spirit, but said that her troubled youth allowed her to be drawn into the drug world. In October of 2011, Nikki was living in a hotel in Brewer with her daughter. She decided that it wasn't a good life for her daughter and relinquished custody of Mia to Mia's father. According to friends, this broke her heart, and afterwards her life spiraled out of control. I hope that's not surprising to anybody. You, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Having to look yeah. to not being able to cope and deal and get it under control and then having to relinquish um, the thing that was supposed to keep you on the straight and narrow that you love so much. Anyway, after Nikki started supplying Dan and Caitlin with drugs, their relationship with Sexton became strained. Sexton, Deleuze, Dan, and Caitlin drove around Bangor trying to rent a motel for the two men, but none was available. 
So they went to Brewer, which is a city on the other side of the Penobscot River from Bangor, where Caitlin rented a hotel room for Deleuze and Sexton under her sister's name. There, Sexton and Deleuze offered the couple cocaine, heroin, and Percocet for sale. According to Caitlin, the men put two guns on the bed and a silver gun with a rounded barrel and a smaller, darker gun. Sexton put the silver gun under his shirt while Deleuze played with the smaller gun. Played with it? What? Dan and Caitlin bought some cocaine, quote, just to keep them happy, unquote. But they purchased less than they usually did and did not buy any Percocet. So my theory is that these guys, Deleuze and Sexton, drove up to Bangor specifically to sell drugs to Caitlin and Dan. Okay. But when it didn't go as planned, they kind of got suspicious. I, or they, I see. Yeah, they got or panicked mad. a so, little bit. Like, yeah, like there's a plan. There's a way this is supposed to go. And if it doesn't go and that it's way. it's not going that way. Yeah. yeah, right. I hear you. As the night progressed, the men became more and more hostile. At one point, Sexton cornered Caitlin and demanded to know where Nikki, quote, was getting her stuff, unquote. At that point, Dan and Caitlin left. The next day, on August 12th, Sexton and Deleuze went to a house in Deadham to pick up a friend. Sexton drove Deleuze and the friend to Bangor in the Pontiac. The friend booked Sexton and Deleuze a room at the Ramada Inn, ooh, fancy, in Bangor (laughs) for the night. The three men eventually went to a Bangor bar called Carolina Sports and Spirits. (laughs) That same evening, Nikki and Dan were at an apartment in Bangor selling drugs. They were trying to locate Percocet for a customer, and Dan called and texted Sexton to obtain the drug. But shortly afterwards, Lucas Toscano arrived at the apartment with Percocet for the customer. Luke has been described as a fun-loving person who could always make you laugh, and he was expecting a daughter to be born any day. Oh, man. So Dan then texted and eventually called Sexton to tell him that they did not need Percocet anymore. <laughs> At the bar, Sexton and Deleuze's friend noticed that Sexton got angry after his friend's phone call with Dan. Sexton and Deleuze left the bar sometime around 10:30 or 11 p.m. in the Pontiac. Sexton told the friend that he and Deleuze would be right back, quote unquote, but they never returned. Around 11 p.m. on August 12th, there was a knock on the front door of the apartment where Dan and Nikki were. One of the apartment's two tenants answered the door, and Sexton, whom the tenant did not recognize, was alone in the doorway with his sweatshirt hood up and drawn. Sexton told her his name was Mike, but Nikki and Dan identified him as Sexton. Sexton asked Dan to come smoke a blunt with him. Nikki invited herself to join them, and she convinced Luke to come along. One of the tenants saw Sexton, Nikki, Dan, and Luke leave in the Pontiac. He did not see Deleuze, but it was dark and he couldn't see into the car. Shortly after they left, other people arrived at the house to buy drugs and the tenants began calling and texting Nikki and Dan to come back. Neither Nikki nor Dan ever answered. After about 15 to 25 minutes, calls to their cell phones started going straight to voicemail. Okay, so this is weird, right? But drug dealers are not the most reliable they're not yes yeah (laughs) you're absolutely right in the job description it doesn't say (laughs) punctual (laughs) yeah so i don't think i'd be panicking if i couldn't get a hold of them 
Yeah. Right, right. But you understand like the tension in the communication because you're trying to get what you want to get. And yeah, you can't. it's not like you can drive down to the store and get get some. Um, I'm only trying to paint the picture for painting the, the picture yes. in their vehicles commuting to work. Okay. This has been Drug Corner with Wendy <laughs> and Beth. Now, at 11.02 p.m., Dan sent Sexton a text message, quote, dude, what's going on, man? Is something up? Unquote. At 11.06, Nikki's cell phone connected to a cellular network for the last time. At 11.16 p.m., Dan's cell phone had its last connection to a network. Caitlin was unable to contact Dan or her sister after that time. Sometime that same night, the owner of the house in Dedham, where Sexton and Deleuze's friend lived, saw a car slowly driving past the house. A few days later, he noticed that a blue can of diesel fuel was missing from the garage. Around 3.07 a.m., surveillance cameras at an industrial park in Bangor captured the Pontiac driving into the lot. Around 3.13 a.m., a person moved quickly away from the car, and moments later, the car was ablaze. <laughs> Around 3.30 a.m., a woman on her way to work discovered the car burning in the lot. It wasn't until firefighters extinguished the blaze that three bodies were found inside the car. Mm. The victims were eventually identified as Dan Borders, Nikki Lugden, and Luke Toscano. Dan and Nikki had each died of a single gunshot wound to the head. The bullet entered behind the left ear of each victim. I think people might think if there was a fire, then all the evidence is gone, right? But it's not. No. <laughs> it was determined that Luke had died from head trauma, but the fire damage to his head was too extensive to tell if he'd been shot. The burned Pontiac contained remnants of a blue container and remnants of a heavy petroleum distillate, specifically a diesel range product. Around 3.30 a.m., a taxi driver picked up Deleuze at the Ramada Inn and dropped him off at a friend's house on First Street. He arrived with a bag of laundry, <laughs> oh, which he wow. washed while he was there. Hello, here's me well, and my laundry. <laughs> I'm just creating an alibi. Don't worry, everyone. Everything is okay. You see my undies? See my undies? Okay. A day or two later, Deleuze left Bangor to go back to Massachusetts. In the morning of August 13th, Sexton called his girlfriend in Rhode Island and asked her to bring their children to Maine citing it as an opportunity for them to spend time together. Um, okay. But when Sexton's family arrived at the Ramada Inn, fancy again, Sexton appeared to be upset. And instead of the family staying overnight, they ordered dinner in the hotel room, and then they all left Bangor together. So that was just a ruse he used to get her to come up there and pick him up. Oh, what a dick. He was he burned his car. So he had no car. He was stuck in Maine. So he's like, oh, why don't you come up here to Maine and we'll spend some time together as a family. Beth, if you ever said, let's go hang out in Maine, I would say, (laughs) no, thank you. But if you were going to cover up a murder, just tell me if you're going to cover a murder. I will be there. Come pick me up. I killed somebody. I will pick you up for sure. For sure. And I won't charge you no gas. Ah, on the more serious side, okay. not so funny. Yeah. Um, Luke's daughter, Ellie, was born 16 days after the murders. Wow. 
So let's get into the investigation and the arrest. Let's figure out what happened here. So since the Pontiac Grand Prix was a rental car, it was linked to Sexton. There's records for all that shit, y'all. So on the day (laughs) that the bodies were discovered, Bangor police detectives learned that Sexton's girlfriend was heading to Maine to pick up Sexton. Cell phone activity led detectives to a hotel in Danvers, Massachusetts. Detectives attempted to interview Sexton in Danvers on August 14th, but he told them he would not speak to them. Sexton and Deleuze were then secretly indicted. This is very shady. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. On the part of the prosecutors? Yeah. 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 By the Penobscot County Grand Jury on September 26th after which fugitive from justice warrants were issued. Yeah, I didn't know that you could secretly indict somebody. If, yeah. Um, and if it's court records, it's public knowledge. So how is it a secret? But anyway. A grand jury, I guess. Grand juries are secret, but their findings are not secret. Right, right. right? Okay, gotcha. Um, only what they are shown is secret and what they discuss and ask the prosecutors and defense attorneys is secret. Hmm. And the evidence that they are shown is secret, but not what their findings are. Okay. So in October of 2012, after receiving some information from an associate of Deleuze, New Bedford police went to a house and found Deleuze there, lying prone on the sidewalk in front of the house, waiting for them. What? Come on. (laughs) I think he knew they were coming and he didn't want to get shot. Oh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. No suicide by cop. I mean, he is a black guy. Yeah. And they usually, like we said, shoot first and ask questions later. So according to police, he seemed to be relieved to be taken in. Police were still looking for Sexton. Sexton was tracked with the help of Rhode Island State Police, the FBI, and U.S. Marshals, and eventually arrested by a tactical team in the wee hours of the morning in Brockton. Deleuze and Sexton told different versions of the events that led to the deaths of Dan, Nikki, and Luke. Sexton said Deleuze shot Dan accidentally, but killed Luke and Nikki intentionally, and that Deleuze forced him to set the car on fire. Oh, no! and threatened to kill him and his children if he went to the police. Okay, don't know if I buy it. (laughs) Deleuze claimed that Sexton shot all three people and that he was innocent completely. Deleuze told police that he didn't kill anyone and blamed Sexton. He claimed that Sexton had dropped him off and later when he picked him up again, Dan and Luke were dead in the car and Nikki was in the backseat hysterical. Seems legit. (laughs) <laughs> sure yeah okay yeah i'm just gonna go pick uh, up my friend i got this anybody. hysterical woman in the back seat and a couple of dead yeah. bodies yeah it, makes sense okay exactly i don't know <laughs> I, I mean don't know i totally I get this <laughs> a, i totally get a black person being like i'm not gonna call the police but you would tell somebody yeah you would yeah. tell somebody and at some point he said sexton turned around and shot nikki as well Sexton then turned the gun on Deleuze. Deleuze told police, quote, I'm lucky to be alive. Oh, thank God. And if he didn't run out of bullets, I'd be dead too. Oh, all my life I had to fight. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. No, he didn't. So he later later said that it was not until he received the ballistics report that he understood the gun had misfired instead of Sexton having fired all of the bullets. He said the misfire was a miracle. 
In March of 2013, a man using a metal detector on the bank of the Penobscot River in Bangor found a Derringer pistol and a Jimenez JA-380 pistol and several rounds of ammunition and a cell phone. Sexton had purchased the Derringer from an acquaintance sometime before the shooting. So it was Sexton's Derringer. And probably all the other stuff, too. A forensic specialist from the Maine State Police Crime Lab concluded that the bullet recovered from Nikki had been fired from the Derringer. He was unable to conclude that the bullet fragments recovered from Dan had been fired from the Jimenez, but he was unable to rule the gun out either. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows okay now it's time to get into the trial hit it beth boom hang on (laughs) in september 2012 deleuze was indicted on three counts of murder and one count of arson he entered pleas of not guilty. Sexton was similarly indicted and the state elected to try Sexton and Deleuze together. In June of 2013, Deleuze moved to separate the cases, arguing that he would be prejudiced by a joint trial with Sexton. And I agree with that completely. Yeah. Initially, yeah. after a hearing, the court granted the motion. However, <laughs> the court's decision was based on the state's plan to introduce a trial incriminating out-of-court statements made by Deleuze implicating himself and Sexton in the crimes. But after the court's initial grant of the motion, the state informed the court that it would not introduce Deleuze's statements. The court then denied Deleuze's motion and ruled that the defendants would be tried together by one jury. So when we see statements like this in records, the court said this, the court said, it's one judge who's making this decision. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's right. not the court's technically. The court, and yeah. That's just the way say, it's what it says in the record. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's what it says in the record. And I know that um, I follow a lot of Black attorneys on Instagram who are trying to dispel this myth that any judge who sits on the bench is honorable and is worthy of honor or that title or respect. respect because it really yeah. is entirely subjective. And Sometimes so, they're dicks. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And unless you're Kentaji Brown Jackson, fuck out of my face. Anyway, so (laughs) the joint trial began on May 1st, 2014. On the first day of the trial, the parties presented opening statements and the jurors were taken to view the industrial park. Wow, that's really like doing the work. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so they went to the Ramada Inn, Caroline Sports and Spirits, and a couple other locations. That's extra. Super and very, I mean... 
this is what our justice system is about, right? Presenting yeah, as much yeah. evidence as you possibly can for each side. I think it's great. On the fourth day of the trial, Caitlin Lugden, now 19, testified that she saw Sexton and Deleuze with the guns at the hotel on August 11th. On the 13th day of trial, Sexton testified implicating Deleuze in all four crimes and attempting to contradict the state's evidence against Sexton. Sexton testified that during a struggle in the car, Deleuze shot Dan accidentally. Whoopsies! And then shot Luke without warning. What? <laughs> okay. Sexton testified that he was afraid of Deleuze and drove where Deleuze directed him to go. Mm. He said that he and Deleuze stole what they believed was gasoline from the house in Dedham and that Sexton drove them to Herman where he and Deleuze got out of the car. So Deleuze will plead like racism later. And right. I don't think that that is without merit. Just saying. Okay. So he claimed that Deleuze then threatened to kill Sexton and his children if Sexton told anyone what happened. Then Deleuze shot Nikki through a broken window in the car with the Derringer while aiming the Jimenez at Sexton. Which seems really uh, improbable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, sh he shot through the window and killed Nikki while he's aiming the other gun at Right. And Sexton. the car That's... is on fire during this whole thing, right? No, it's not. Oh, no. oh. They set it on fire later, but Afterward. it just seems really improbable okay. that this is what happened. So Sexton wept on the witness stand while describing Nikki as a friend. He claimed that he burned the car and bodies because Deleuze threatened to kill him if he didn't. Quote, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Unquote. And a prosecutor said in court that Sexton called Deleuze more than a dozen times in the day that followed the killings, indicating he wasn't scared of Deleuze. Why would you call him so many times, right? Yeah. And yeah. that Sexton's testimony regarded the way that Dan and Nikki were shot was not consistent with the medical evidence, which indicated that Dan and Nikki were each killed by a single gunshot behind the ear. On the 14th day of the trial, Deleuze's attorney presented three witnesses and Deleuze elected not to testify himself. The jury was instructed that a defendant does not have to testify and that the jury could not draw any inference from a defendant's decision not to testify. But you bet they did. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can tell the jury that, but of course they yeah. take that into consideration. So right. the same day closing arguments were made, Sexton's attorney argued that the state wanted the jury to use poetic license, quote unquote, to fill the parts of its story where the state was unable to produce direct evidence of what had happened. The court instructed that the jurors could not allow, quote, any feelings of prejudice to play a part in their verdict, unquote. The court's instructions also included the elements of the crime's charge, stated either defendant was guilty of a crime charge if he acted as the other defendant's accomplice in the commission of that crime, that the jury was obligated to consider the evidence and the instructions separately as to each defendant and to reach a separate, independent verdict as to each charge and each defendant. That sounds like a lot of work. It does. And, I, and that's why I, I kind of by Deleuze's efforts for an appeal, because that seems unjust. Yeah. If you consider, it doesn't seem you like know, they well, should have 
have a right. joint trial. Exactly. Because they're asking them to look at the facts and everything. Um, look and at it all together. And, but also yeah, look separate at it together, it. but separately. Yeah, yeah. That's too, that's, yeah, it's that's too unfair. Hard. Yeah. It's unfair yeah. to the defendants. And I think it's also unfair to the jury to ask. Yeah. Um, but what do I know? Because nobody has picked me for a jury. Anyway, <laughs> the jury deliberated from May 21st to May 28th, 2014 at which point the jury indicated that it was deadlocked on two charges, the charges that Sexton had murdered Dan Borders and Luke Toscano. The court declared a mistrial on those two charges. The jury found Deleuze guilty of all three murder charges and the arson charge, and it found Sexton guilty of the murder of Nikki Lugden and the arson charge. In June of 2014, Deleuze filed a motion for a new trial, arguing that he had been deprived of due process by being tried jointly with Sexton and by Sexton's closing argument. In part, he argued that Sexton's counsel had impermissibly commented on Deleuze's decision not to testify, argued that Deleuze was more likely than Sexton to have carried the murder weapons because of their respective races and suggested mm. that Deleuze had dangerous friends who were members of minority races. Um, which is... That doesn't seem... F- fucked up right. and very yeah. wrong of any yeah. lawyer to bring up in the courtroom if they any want to stuff. say that justice yeah. is blind. And that right. bitch is not. We know it very well here at Fruit Loops. Right, Fruities? Yeah. <laughs> yep. So after hearing in April 2015, the court denied the motion. The sentencing hearing took place in July of 2015. Before the official sentencing began, members of the victim's families spoke to the judge all recalling how their loved ones did not deserve to die. Barbara Pinot spoke to the judge, explaining how her daughter was not a bad person and how she had a heart of gold, saying she would do anything for anyone. Nikki didn't have a second chance of life, so why do they get a chance? Luke Toscano's mother, Cheryl Toscano-Pavelka, asked the judge to impose the maximum sentence of life in prison for both men. I wish we had the death penalty because... They don't deserve the right to live. Luke's best friend also addressed the court, choking back tears and saying, The best part of me was taken. He would do anything for anyone. I have not been the same since he was taken from me. Yeah. And that's, I think, one thing we have to remember. Yeah. I don't know why that hit me just now, but these lives were taken. Right. During the sentencing hearing, both Deleuze and Sexton greeted family members seated behind them, with Deleuze blowing kisses to his family. Deleuze took the stand. He apologized, but maintained his innocence. Quote, I am not a cold man. I was raised to take responsibility for my actions. I did not kill Dan, Nicole, or Lucas, unquote. In fact, he claimed, quote, I stopped selling drugs to Dan because I heard he had overdosed a couple of times, unquote. But he was selling drugs. Yeah, he, yeah, he was. He, so. Yes, yes. But um, we'll get into it in our takeaways. So he spoke about his conversion to Christianity while awaiting trial and how he works with other inmates to help them understand how the Bible can help them find peace. He offered his deepest, sincerest condolences. Unquote. A man named Tom Shuford spoke on Deleuze's behalf. Shuford became involved with ministry at the Penobscot County Jail through Bangor Baptist Church, and he volunteered at the jail and met with Christian inmates who asked for spiritual guidance. He met with Deleuze for an hour each day, five days a week. He and his wife, Terry Shuford, urged the judge to consider Deleuze's religious conversion when imposing the sentence. 
And I just want to point out how so many people in prison do find religion and a higher power. And I don't think it is a bad thing. But no, but it's sometimes it's just bullshit. (laughs) Sometimes it is. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, friend. So Sexton did not address the court, but his lawyer said he was innocent and asked the judge for a 25 year sentence for the murder charge. Defense attorney David Bates said, quote, he was very, very good friends with Nicole Lugden. I'm sure he did not wish her any harm. So every time that came up, he was extremely emotional, unquote. Deleuze's attorney urged the judge to impose a sentence of less than life, but did not make a specific recommendation. He said Deleuze's jail conversion to Christianity and his efforts to minister to other inmates was a major mitigating factor in determining what sentence should be imposed. The judge addressed the court saying that exactly what happened the night will never be known. But the evidence shown that Sexton was angry with Borders for going to another drug supplier. He said that he believed that Deleuze and Sexton meant to harm Dan Borders, but he wasn't sure if they intended to kill him. He also said he thought Lucas Toscano and Nicole Lugden were killed because they were witnesses to Daniel's murder. When the defendants picked up Daniel Borders, Nicole Lugden and Lucas Toscano came along for the ride. I believe that Borders was shot first and Toscano was killed because he was a witness, unquote. He believed that Nikki was alive in the car with Sexton and Deleuze and two dead bodies for at least an hour. Think of that. Yeah. While the two men drove around deciding what to do with her, he believed that she was probably hysterical and begged for her life, quote, I don't believe any heart was shown by either defendant throughout this night, unquote. The judge rejected Deleuze's contention that the verdict was racist because he's black, saying, quote, the verdict was not a product of any racial prejudice, but of the evidence presented at trial, unquote. And I disagree. I do, too. I don't think that you can speak of any event that happens in this world <laughs> that race does not play a part. Sorry, it's yeah. just it's not impossible. <laughs> So the court sentenced Deleuze to three concurrent life terms of imprisonment for the murder convictions and a concurrent 20 years of imprisonment for the arson conviction. Sexton was sentenced to 90 years in prison. After the judge sentenced Deleuze and left the courtroom, Nikki's adoptive mother, Barbara Pinot, said, Amen. She then stood up and high-fived family members of the other victims. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, I'll tell you, both Deleuze and Sexton appealed their convictions and sentencing, but have been unsuccessful. Deleuze still maintains his innocence. While in jail, Deleuze started a website. And he doesn't have access to internet, so Terry Shuford, the wife of his spiritual advisor, created the site and transcribes Deleuze's longhand religious writings and posts them for him under his name. On the website, he claims to have gotten an unfair trial and that his attorney sabotaged his case. He cites a statewide investigation into the, quote, corrupt and unfair practices that have plagued the main justice system for decades, unquote. He claims that the prosecution tampered with witnesses, the police lied, filed false reports, and illegally obtained cell phone records without a warrant. And I'm going to (laughs) say my research into the case started with his website. So I was like, yeah, they did do that. But then I, heard, <laughs> then I, then I saw then you read the, the other story, stuff yeah. and I was like, oh, maybe they didn't. <laughs> oh, so anyway, <laughs> uh, so, quote, I believe what happened to me during my trial amounted to a public lynching, unquote. 
And a lot of black men say that when they are yeah. under attack. Um, yeah. Duluth said he hopes to earn his Master's of Divinity degree and be ordained so he can minister to his fellow inmates as a pastor. Deleuze is currently being housed in Massachusetts Department of Corrections, MCI, Norfolk. Sexton is housed in the New Hampshire Department of Corrections. So now we're going to get into our thoughts, our takeaways, and what we think made Deleuze snap. What do you got, Beth? Well, he was doing doing drugs. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, seriously, none of this would have happened without the drug component. Honestly, I think Sexton was the one who started the whole thing. Mm -hmm. He was the one who was angry with Dan Borders. That's Mm -hmm. what all the witnesses said. Mm -hmm. And he was the one who got the three victims to leave with him. They were at the apartment and he Uh went up and Deleuze wasn't there. You know, Mm -hmm. he got them to go with him. Mm -hmm. And I think Sexton killed Dan. Then Nikki and Luke were killed because they were witnesses. I don't know how much of a part Deleuze played in it. I think Mm -hmm. he did play a part, but I think it was driven by Sexton. Mm -hmm. And all of the whining that Sexton did about how Deleuze forced him to do things, I think, Mm -hmm. were lies. And I do think racism did play a role in the convictions and sentencing. Yes. That said, I don't think Deleuze was a great guy and he was definitely part of it. So he's not innocent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How much of a part he played? I don't know. They both pretty much got life in jail. So it all washed out in the end. But I don't I don't understand how they came to the conclusion that Deleuze had more responsibility in the murders. Yeah. I wasn't at the trial. I didn't see all the testimony and (laughs) stuff. So I don't know for sure. But I think it starts with an R and it ends with an A-cism. That's my friend over there. That's get her a plate. What do you want on the plate? Do you want mashed potatoes? Do you want some oxtail? Extra sauce? You get it. And Sexton, how dumb do you have to be to torture a car that you rented after you killed some people that you knew and were seen with the same night they were killed and torched in a car? Yeah. Uh (laughs) This is one of the dumbest crimes we've covered. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm so surprised by his pleas for innocence. Yeah. He didn't have... Yeah, bullshit. Yeah. He really says he doesn't have anything to do with it. So uh, finally, my heart goes out to Caitlin, who lost her sister and a boyfriend on the same day. Mm -hmm. And all of the children involved, there were a lot of children who were affected by this tragedy. Children Mm -hmm. of the victims and children of the perpetrators. Yes. Thank you for saying that, Beth. I I, um, thank you. And also... To the community. I mean, yeah. um, we talked about how small the population was in the town. And yeah. I can only imagine everybody kind of feeling the effects of this. Right. Also, just thoughts and prayers to the community members who yeah. um, are left in the wake of this tragedy. I think that none of this would have happened without the drug component. Agree 100%. Yeah. But I, I wanted to take a look back what led to these young men feeling like selling drugs was necessary for them to survive right. and get ahead. And what contributed to people needing to consume drugs? What yeah. is all that about? We know pain, disenfranchisement, all the things that keep people on the fringes. And lack, essentially, like lack. I did a culture corner, a really brief one, that really didn't have to do too much with race, but economics. Like when people are sort of stuck in service jobs that don't have huge opportunities for increased wages, et cetera, then what else are they going to do? So I don't think the drug thing should be a surprise to people. I hope it's not anyway. 
Also, I think racism plays a role in every single thing that we <laughs> deal with. Wake up. You smell that? It's racism. <laughs> the best part of waking up is racism in your cup. Wait, uh, the best so, part? Yeah. No, no, it's not. It's actually the, it's the worst part. part. Yeah, it is. Uh, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere and it's in everything. And so even with the jury selection, with the attorneys that were involved, all the things it did play a part in the outcome. And I don't yeah. think we should forget that. All that said, I don't think Deleuze is innocent. No. I will say I, you know, this is one of those cases where I think the jury got it right. Yeah. So now, uh, do you have anything to add, Fred? Nope. All right. Well, let's get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. All right. So this occurred on the East Coast. This is a touristy town. If you're going on a trip, never get a hotel room on the ground floor. Don't Mm. listen to what whoever's booking your room tells you. They're lying. It's safer (laughs) to not get a room on the first floor. Okay. Also, don't post in real time where you are, what you're doing, none of that stuff. Because people who are after you are going to be keeping an eye out for that stuff. Also, keep your head on the swivel at all times. Be aware of your surroundings. Keep your bag in front of your body. Ladies, most of our fruities are ladies and femmes. Keep your bag in front of your body. You know, I travel with a fanny pack because I'm... Because you're a badass like that. Exactly. But yeah. if you're not fanny pack life, then keep your bag in front of you. It's less likely to get taken. Also, avoid places with no witnesses, entrances, oh. exits, stuff like that. Be where the people are. I want to be where the people <laughs> are. Those are thank you to uh, Nichelle <laughs> Laos on TikTok. Nice. Thank um, you. like a safety pal on TikTok. Very cool. I have her at sign and um, she will be credited for sure. Let's get into the shout outs. Shout out time. My favorite time where we shout out any people of color, any BIPOC, LGBTQ folks or any true crime goodies. What do you got? Actually, I'm just going to shout out one thing. The History of the World Part 2 on Hulu. Oh, did you watch that? Yes, I'm consuming it it and I am loving it. Have you heard of this guy, Mel Brooks? Oh, Mel Brooks. Yeah, so I watched The History of the World Part 1 years and years and years ago, decades ago. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, he's funny. Mel Brooks is involved in the creation of this Part 2. I mean, I thought he was dead. Yeah, I thought he was dead too. I'm like, not, what is this? He's not dead at all. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Mel Brooks no. is alive. He's totally alive. Good to know. And he's teaming up with people who normally wouldn't get a voice. So Wanda Sykes oh, is involved. Nice. And there's a lot of um, people who we wouldn't normally see being um, included in the stories of history. And Very it's cool. really funny. It's like drunk history, but people aren't drunk. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, And it's just funny and fun. I mean, like there's one point where these white guys are being so stupid. And um, Wanda (laughs) Sykes. White guys being stupid? It's crazy. And Wanda Sykes (laughs) is playing 
Harriet Tubman. She's like, I can't believe you dumbasses enslaved us. You guys are fucking stupid. It's so funny. Anyway, so that is on Hulu. What do you got? I have two things. The first one is true life crime on Paramount Plus and MTV. So it's an MTV show, but it's now on Paramount Plus. And I think there's like three seasons. I hadn't seen it before because I don't watch MTV. So now it's on Paramount Plus. Okay. And it's a true crime show. Uh Journalist Dometi Pongo looks to uncover truth as he brings awareness to shocking and deadly crimes committed against young people. And it's marginalized people. All the episodes that I've seen, it's all people of color. And Dometi Pongo is very handsome. So, oh, okay. (laughs) There's that too. (laughs) (laughs) What else do you have? Who Killed Robert Wan on Peacock? And it's spelled W O N E. It's an Asian guy who was murdered in DC and it was never solved. It's really weird. It's three episodes. It's like, unsolved mysteries episode but three episodes long it's really good say less i'm there (laughs) subscribed i'm already on the peacock app so right on um just to recap that is history of the world on hulu it is just a story about history and it includes all of us so check it out and then true life crime on paramount plus and mtv as well as Who Killed Robert Wan on Peacock. Um, yep, we're here. <sighs> all right. Uh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know where I'm going to go. <laughs> Somebody please help me. <laughs> but that's the end of our show. And uh, Beth, where can the people find us? <laughs> Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five star review. I really am sad. <laughs> <laughs> but you soon you get to go to bed being so. sleepy doesn't yes, help yes <laughs> okay, so, okay so i'll say the thing and you promise we'll be back you yes not, yes we'll, i'm not we'll like be back on thursday the show like you don't no. hate me or like <laughs> well, we, no you're you, being silly now win. okay all right okay so Okay, guys, I'm going to say it, but that's says we're coming back. But I don't we're coming know. back on Thursday. That's what she says, everybody. Okay, so this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. <laughs> <laughs>
Really? See my undies? See my undies? Okay. Doing, Doing drugs. drugs. <laughs> Super duper 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 busy. Percocet. Molly Percocet. Percocet. Molly Percocet. And I just can't get it out of my head. I'm sorry. This has been Drug Corner with Wendy and Beth. <laughs> Mel Brooks is alive. He's totally alive. Good to know. This is how tired I am, friend. I'm. I have. Okay. I have not slept in a lot of days. Oh okay. my gosh, you I'm need sorry. to get some sleep. I know. Girl. I know. I know. Whatever. <laughs> uh, again, I'm fired. I want to be where the people are. I want to see. Want to see them dancing. I hope Minnie has fun with that. Sisty, sisty. What? <laughs> Is that what you call Minnie? <laughs> sisty. Minnie, my sisty. <laughs> <laughs> Never would have made it without you. I would have lost it all. And now I see. Go ahead, Beth. Interject anytime. <laughs> and what you are there for me. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> you can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Yeah.